people on Facebook. Blog Talk Radio. Here we go. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everybody. This is Fran Lewis, and I'm your host from Freezing Westchester. It's beautiful outside. The sun is shining, and we're going to have a blast because we have the author of a Christmas Carol Murder, just in time for the holiday season. And Heather Redman is here. Welcome to MJ Network. MJ is named in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce. So welcome, and I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me, friend. I'm looking forward to chatting with you this morning. It is not so lovely here in Vancouver, Washington, where it is pitch dark still. Oh, well. Well, hopefully it will clear up and... It'll be nicer everywhere someday soon, I hope. The good part of doing this radio show is that I don't have to wear a mask. <laughs> Thank God. Yes. Yes. So why did you create a novel with Charles Dickens as the sleuth? That's original. And which characters besides Charles Dickens are real-life people? And thank you for putting the character thing in there so I was able to not have to guess who's real and who's not real. I used to read Harlequin Intrigue Mysteries back in the day and always appreciated their cast of characters. So when I got a chance to do my own mysteries, it seemed like a great idea. So I had been writing romance ever since my first professional sale, which was a mystery. And I had written about a Dickens-loving hero in my historical book, The Princess Dilemma, And it was just about then that my editor had moved on to a mystery publisher. So I had a chance to pitch mystery series to him. And one of the ideas I had, of course, was Charles Dickens. And that's the one he liked best because he was used to me writing books for him set in the 19th century. So Mm -hmm. each book has some cast of characters that are the same and that are different, of course, and I have my standard list of people who existed in history and people who come and go and then people who are just featured for the purposes of one book. So Charles Dickens was only 22 years old at the first Mm -hmm. book in the series, which is A Tale of Two Murders, and Catherine Hogarth, uh, who became his fiance, is a real person, and We don't know how they met. Um, We just have a sort of rough timeline because he started working for her father in October, and we know they knew each other by February because she went to his birthday party in February Mm -hmm. 1835. So everybody in their families, which are large families, are real people. So um, I frequently refer to both of their parents, and also to their siblings, um, Mary Hogarth and Fred Dickens, though I do mention all the siblings at times. And then pretty generally after 
after that, all the rest of the main characters are fictionalized. Some of them are coming out of um, his own characters that he created. But, like, for instance, with the Christmas Carol murder, I have Aaron Bale, who is an American mm-hmm. ambassador. Seems like quite an interesting guy. So he comes in at a key moment in the book. Um, but generally speaking, everybody else is fiction. Yeah, but you know something? The way you wrote it, and seriously, I've read thousands of books, and everybody knows that. I lost count a long time ago. It just seemed that everybody just belonged together. They just sort of fit. It wasn't that, you know, when you read the book and you say, well, he's not real and he's fake and he's fictional or whatever. You didn't see that. When you're, right, when you're reading it, you just said everybody sort of like fits right in. You would never know the difference unless you read the, you know, the character thing, which, which I found interesting. That's just my opinion. Well, that's, that's so great to hear. I do like to write supporting characters with full arcs of their own. And Christmas Carol Murder, it's easily read as a standalone. A lot of people are doing that because it's such a beautiful Christmas gift um, with this beautiful red and gold cover. And it's available in Target for the first time. So a lot of people are seeing it who didn't realize that it's actually book three in a series. So what is this? Charles Dickens is the main character in this book, which I thought was really cool, and his wife Kate. So what is his position as far as work? What does he do? Because he's not a sleuth. Right. He had a a checkered career um, until he made it big at 24, 25 years old. He started as a law clerk, and his father had worked at the Naval Pay Office, and he learned a complicated form of shorthand um, as that career was losing interest or he physically couldn't do it anymore. We're not entirely sure. And so Charles learned that shorthand as well. And they were living in London at the time, and his father decided to write articles for papers. Um, they knew some people from the family in the business, and Charles followed him into that and turned out to be very successful as a parliamentary reporter. It was um, a very high-paying job at the time and very exciting mm-hmm. for young men to do. They were traveling around the country following stories, and um, just very exciting, dynamic job. And, of course, Charles Dickens always had to be the best at everything. So he was in that career he excelled in, though he um, spent many, many years before he completely gave up on the idea of being a lawyer. That was his backup plan. And it's interesting with the newspaper business, you do see lawyers there, like his boss and future father-in-law, George Hogarth, was a lawyer who became a newspaper publisher. So there just seems to be a lot of crossover between those careers. Well, then they go caroling, and people accompany him. And what happens? How did you create that scene with the guy falling out the window? That was like, whoa. I was looking at what sort of Christmas activities they actually did in 1835, Mm -hmm. selling whatever they could find that was cast up by the river. So he decides to um, bring out a top hat and go around singing to try to get Mm -hmm. money um, to send his mudlark friends to school. And his partner in crime in all those things is William Aga, who is Mm -hmm. a fictional character, um, who doesn't have a counterpart in the Dickens novels. He's just my guy. And um, so he has the charity with William, and they work together, and they have their lady friends. William is now married to Julie, who's been a character since before they met, and, of course, Kate, and then their youngest 
their younger siblings, Mary and Fred. So they go out caroling, and I researched what songs they actually knew. So mm-hmm. I have them singing along um, to the real songs they would have sung back then. And they um, are wandering around trying to find places with money. And so they come across Finsbury Circus, which is a fairly new neighborhood. It still exists today, very grand and beautiful, and I can go on Google Maps and see what it looks like. And um, they find the one house that has the lights on, though it's a very stark, forbidding kind of house with no decorations. And while they're singing away um, with to the candles but not the people, um, something falls under the window at them at the foot of the front stairs, and it is a body. Did you? Can you hear a static when you're talking? Because it sounds static here on my end. I'm not sure. I hear static when you're talking, so I don't hear it on my side, but I'm not surprised. I hear it on your side. I hear it on your side. I don't hear it on my side. <laughs> That's I don't funny. Know. Are you on a are you on a landline or a cell phone? I'm on a cell phone with um iBuds. Yes. Sometimes that happens. Okay, so why why does he care for his brother and why is his parent our parents his parents so negative about him? And then I'm gonna to come to Tim and Timothy in a few minutes. So so sad. <laughs> so uh, the families were large back then. Um, I think Charles had six siblings living at the time of the book. And because he was the second oldest um, and the oldest male, um, he had a lot of responsibility towards the families. Um, not unusual. Um, an older sibling takes care of younger siblings. Um, and what was really unusual about his family is it was his sister that the family spent money on. The oldest child was a sister named Franny. And she was a gifted musician. So when the Dickens family had money, they were paying for her to have lessons uh, to sing and then ultimately hoping to have her work as a musician. And she was working at the Adelphi Theater at the time of this book. So um, Charles's father had financial problems um, Mm. that were visibly creating issues in the family from the age of 10 on for him. He was in and out of debtor's prison and um, sponging houses. And this was a moment where John Dickens, his father, had fled out to Hampstead Heath to avoid creditors. And Charles was just kind of fed up with the whole family situation. So for the first time, um, for about, say, 14 months before this story begins, he had bought his own set of rooms. And he had invited a friend of his to come share the cost. And the friend decided to stay living with his mother for the moment, though he did eventually marry into the Dickens mm-hmm. family. And so Charles invited his brother to come with him instead. And mm-hmm. we, or at least I don't know exactly how Fred was being educated. Um, I know he was um, in the working world sometime in 1836. So I decided that Charles brought him in specifically to supervise his education and then help him find work when the time was right. So um, they really were living together at the place I have them, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of things I don't know exactly. You know, like I don't know what the interior looks like, so I'm just trying to research what a typical three-room flat would be back then. You know, no running water, no kitchen. Um, it's just very different from what we think of as a starter apartment these days. Well, we have.
have the cutest character in the book is Timothy. And what he did was shows that Charles has a big heart. But he had to hide it from Kate because when they find out, he's going to be in big trouble. So how did you create right. that? And I love little Timothy. I felt so bad for him. And yet he did the right thing, I think. I absolutely agree. Um, so back then, obviously, there were a lot of illegitimate children around because there wasn't birth control and there wasn't social welfare, and that's what Timothy is. He's a parentless baby. Charles opens the book um, in a place he was in um, in real life, and he was reporting on the Hatfield Fire. And I, in writing a Christmas book, had to include a Christmas child because I spent so many years writing and reading Christmas romances, and it's always my favorite part to see a Christmas child. I was raised Catholic, so, of course, being raised on the um, Bethlehem story with Jesus in the cradle during Christmas. So since in real life Charles was um, reporting on this horrible fire, I decided to have a child come out of that. So he was out by the fire, which is still smoldering. And he eventually crawls into bed after taking care of all of his work responsibilities for the night. And when he wakes up, he finds that same serving maid at his door with a baby. And she tells him that the mother of the baby died in this fire. And Mm. she is convinced that the child is his. And he cannot talk her out of it. She just sort of shoves this poor little baby into his arms and disappears into the night. And because he is unable to find the girl and everyone kind of closes up in the town, he decides to take the baby back to London because, of course, he's afraid the baby's going to die. Um, Timothy is maybe four months old. Um, He knows more about babies than probably the average young man would these days because of these large families. There's always young children around. And um, so he makes it back to London with baby Timothy just in time to find a wet nurse to keep Timothy alive. He is very scared. And being just a real-life, incredibly charitable person, and in my books as well, he can't possibly let this child die in the Christmas season on his watch. I wonder how many people would do that today with this going on. I doubt it. This is really cool. Mr. Holly falls out the window, poor thing, and they assume it's an accident. And why does he say it's murder? He says it's murder because it does not look that much like an accident. So Charles is there with the ladies who are fainting and his crime reporter friend. So he's begging his brother Fred to take care of the ladies. And he and William kneel down by the body. Like I had said, there's some light there, not a great deal. It is night. And they discover that there are chains wrapped around the man's neck. And they know that things looked really bizarre as he was falling out the window. He actually bounced like a marionette. So they knew something was extra strange from the get-go. But it's an elderly man and, you know, doesn't have that appearance of looking to be a suicide, whatever an average suicide would look like. And the chains around the neck just seem incredibly suspicious, though they have no idea who this person actually is. So tell us about 
guy. I, I, I couldn't make up my mind if I loved him or hated him. After a while, you got to love him. Tell us about Mr. Screws and who worked for him. And for those people that don't know what accounting house is, back then, what is accounting house and what did he do? The, the name is perfect, so by the way. Harley has been staying in his own room at Mr. Screws' mansion because he's even cheaper than Mr. Screws. And Mr. Screws has his full complement of staff, coachman, housekeeper, housekeeper's boy, um, the nurse cook maids that we don't see much of in the book. So it's a full house. He also has um, one of his employees living with him, Mr. Fletcher, who's an American transplant. So it's kind of a full house, and Mr. Harley is just there intermittently as needed. And um, this is Mr. Screw's world because his sister's dead. His mother had lived with him at one point, and you get the sense that when his mother was alive, that was really his only society. So after she died, Mr. Harley's um, just become everything. The county house is their complete focus, and um, they're just these grasping, miserly old men, just like in A Christmas Carol. So why did he hire, now this character, watch out, people. Why did he hire Mr. Fletcher? And why did Mr. Fletcher want to you know, be friends with Charles Dickens? So Mr. Fletcher is that junior manager. So you have Screws and uh-huh. Harley, who are quite elderly running the business. And Harley has been ill, and everyone else they're treating like the lowest of the low. I really do have Bob Cratchit from A Christmas Carol being um, the head of the clerks, and the clerks are all in the central room being mistreated and not being given much opportunity to grow because it's a very classist system and they're lower class. So Mr. Fletcher is coming from the United States, And I gave him my family tree. He's one of the Lees of Virginia. Um, All the jokes I make about the Mayflower versus um, the Virginia people is coming from my family history. And uh, so he um, is coming from kind of a complicated mess of a family in Virginia, and he learned the trade of counting houses in Boston, working with someone who had apprenticed with Screws and Harley in the day, you know, probably 50, 55 years ago. So he's been exchanging mail and doing business with Screws and Harley um, since he established his own counting house in Boston. So Mr. Screws um, has this young man show up with a letter of introduction from his friend, and so he takes him in to the counting house because he needs that junior manager. He needs someone to groom because it's looking like Mr. Harley will die soon from illness. And when um, Mr. Fletcher meets Charles Dickens, it's at the inquest, and there are two men of about the same age um, standing with the police and the um, servant class. So, of course, they naturally speak to each other. And Mr. Fletcher is an engaged man, and Charles Dickens is an engaged man. So it just makes sense that they form couple friends. So we have, they start to investigate the murder. We have Miss Osborne. We'll touch on her briefly. But when they start to investigate the murder, why did they accuse Mr. Harley's son and the maid? Because they are visibly lower class 
than the victim. Um, it's assumed, of course, that they would be the killers. There's that attitude of not our kind, the butler did it kind of thing. You wouldn't expect the upper classes to be killers if indeed Mr. Harley was murdered. It might have been a suicide. But since um, the Caroling party thinks it was murder, of course, they're looking for um, who might be there. And this is a world that initially is closed off to them. The only person they know that was in the house initially with Mr. Screws was the housekeeper. So she's an obvious suspect just because she was there. Um, she appears behind Mr. Screws um, at some point in the proceedings and gives him something warm to wear. And when Charles sees his son, you know, today we would see him as um, a special needs young man who. Yeah large and intimidating, but mm. an intimidating, unusual physical presence. So, of course, anyone is going to fear the unknown, especially when there's a convenient dead body. And then um, Mr. Harley's son, as they find out, is illegitimate and half Irish. And they were not real fond of the Irish in England back then. They were considered a lower class. So he's another obvious scapegoat. And also, of course, he's Mr. Harley's only relative that they're aware of, and if you're not looking at the servants, well, of course you're going to look at who's benefiting from a death, which would be the person's offspring. So we have Mrs. Dorset and Mrs. Pettingle. Who are they, and how are they related to what happened to, uh, with Mr. Screws? So Mrs. Dorset is Mr. Screws' housekeeper. And yep. like I mentioned a little bit ago, I love to give the story to all the main supporting characters. So we do mm -hmm. see her change uh, throughout the course of the book, and we learn more about her and her son. And Mrs. Pattengill is a relative by marriage of Mr. Screws. So like I said, Mr. Screws has had a mother and a sister. We don't learn anything yeah. about his father. Um, and his mother had one child. Um, she was obviously married to someone named Pettengill, which is um, an old Boston name, and it's coming out of um, ultimately from the Salem Witch Trials. Not that name, but I'm descended from a chain that's starting in the Salem Witch Trials that has that Pettengill name, and it was too good to not use. And um, she is is married to his nephew, who is Edward Pettengill. He is a noted birding enthusiast and writer, and it turns out he's a boy's own hero sort of guy. But Mrs. Pettengill is certainly a character I had fun with. Um, she's just a multidimensional young woman, and my favorite scene in the book has her in it. Okay. Now... This gets interesting, people. We have Julia and William, <laughs> and they're caring for Timothy. God bless them. And then we have Lucy Fair. How does she come to them also? And then we're going to talk about what's something that really upset me. Poor Charles. So the Mudlarks have been around in this complete series, and William was using them as information gatherers. Um, everything passes through the river in a city that's bisected by such an important river like the Thames. And so Charles um, was 
of interacting with them as well, and more than using them as informers, his just incredible capacity for caring about his fellow man came into play um, when he saw this young girl and all the boy children. It's a very um, Mary or Peter Pan with Wendy type situation, Wendy and her boys. So uh, Lucy Fair is my Wendy character. And they start to realize that she's older than they thought. And over the course of the books, um, some of the boys have mishaps. Some of the boys are going off to school because Charles and William's charity is paying for it. And scarier older boys move into their patch of the Thames. In apartments in London, um, they might have a fireplace, but they don't have running water or anything. So there's an incredible amount of work to keep the household going. And now we have a baby to take care of too. And Julie's only about 17 years old as a very young wife, um, has no idea how to take care of a baby, but at least they know mm -hmm. Lucy's good with young children. So they give her a chance, clean her up, discover she's even older and more beautiful than they realize she's about 14. Mm. So they're feeling very pleased with themselves to get her off of the Thames foreshore and into a safe house. Now, this really got me, okay? Um, mm -hmm. They find out about Timothy, and Kate has a fit, and she doesn't want to talk to him. And why does her father assume he's guilty? I mean, really, they didn't even give him a chance. I got annoyed because, after all, she should trust him. He's not going to cheat on her, seriously. But so how come well, how come they, they automatically assumed, okay, bye, you're and he fi got fired. That even bothered me more. You're fired. <laughs> That made sense, actually, yes. probably, but poor child, I felt so bad for him. He should have just dumped her and got somebody else. What can I say? No, can't do that. <laughs> well, Fran, I have a slightly different perspective because, of course, I love <laughs> Kate Hogarth. Um, as much as I can recreate her to what she was like as a 19, 20, 21-year-old 20, young woman, I tried to do so. Um, things happen <laughs> later in life that caused her to be pretty obliterated from the historical record. But um, I don't see her as rejecting him. I see Kate as desperately trying to hold Charles um, to her. But the social mores of the time did not allow her to easily do that because she's being controlled by her father until she goes into her husband's arms. She's a minor. She couldn't even marry Charles without her parents' approval right then. Um, she's 20 years old when she got married to him. So um, I decided naturally that Mr. Hogarth would be very protective of his daughter. Um, we can assume that he handpicked Charles for her because he was Charles' boss, so it's assumed that he introduced her, Calvinist religion of Scotland. And I did some research on Calvinism. It's not my religious background, but I have this impression that there's a lot of rigidity in it. Um, they're anti-art. And they do believe in education, but I get the sense that it's very morally rigid, um, anti-woman. Um, they're against fortification. So I assume they wouldn't really appreciate illegitimate children. So with all that, I decided that the Hogarths would be horrified um, if Charles was accused of having an illegitimate child, regardless of the fact that the baby um, obviously would have been born with a conception date before Charles met Kate, um, and that they wouldn't really believe um, Charles, because how convincing is it 
possibly the woman wasn't in that town when she conceived. You know, just the whole runaround of there's a baby, someone's responsible, and then you're trying to protect your daughter from a slightly lower class man who you mm-hmm. suddenly are realizing might not be who you thought. So we have, this is interesting too. The constables were not that great back then, and as the novel progresses, somebody else get killed, right? There's another murder. Yes. And then this really got me. I mean, you know, just the fact that she didn't stand by him in the fall, that could happen now too. I mean, that's not so far-fetched that somebody could just say, you know, maybe you had maybe you had an affair and you didn't tell me. So um, as the novel progresses, somebody else is murdered, right? And the constables don't seem to be too concerned about anything. And why in heaven blazes does he work for Mr. Screws as his secretary? Oh, my God. I was like, poor Charles. <laughs> so I was like, what is wrong with you? There's a lot to unpack there. Um, this is definitely a situation where you have to realize the times were not the same. We are so used to modern policing and all the modern tools that we don't realize how very, very different 1835 was. There were different forms of policing in England. Um, in London specifically, there were the River Police and the Bow Street Runners that are coming out of the 18th century. But the modern policing force, the Metropolitan Police, was not formed until six years before this book. And Scotland Yard, the detectives, did not exist until the 1840s. So the 1830s are this intermediate period where London is trying to come to terms with what policing looks like. Um, The Bow Street Runners still exist. They haven't been quite phased out yet. And the Bow Street Runners, it's not like you can go to a computer manual of how to behave. And everyone's um, a lot more self-actualized just doing what they want because you can't pick up a phone and call somebody. You can't turn on a computer. So everyone's just doing their best. So the constables are just the beat walkers. There's no detective to call. Um, There's not a huge amount of management structure. For the most part, these are working class men. Um, There's a lot of trouble with drunkenness on the force. There's a huge amount of turnover in those early years. And um, you don't really count on the police like you would. In fact, if you're someone who's more upper class than your average policeman, you're going to look down on them. Um, In the Victorian world here, the 19th century, um, your house was your castle. There's a real sense of the man being the king of his own domain and the thought of allowing some lower class creature into your house to tell you what to do is unacceptable um, in a way that we can hardly understand now. So um, while there are coroner's courts and you do have to report a murder, it didn't always happen. So Charles, um, being involved in crime and working for the paper, he knows to go for a constable. He's starting to have relationships with coroners. Um, there's one now in his social orbit. So he's going by the book. He's always going to call a constable. But it's So this, is, this really got me because, you know, a lot of people have this problem. When they're working for someone, they're on call all the time. So Charles is on call all the time working for Mr. Scoo, so he's really, you know, that's not fair. So how is solving a murder in 1835 different than solving it today? And why was he on back? He was on his beck and call every five minutes. Okay. Seriously. So 
when we first meet Mr. Scrooge, there's this sense that Charles is familiar with the environment of this house and this man, yeah. and he can't quite put a finger on it. And one of the reasons Charles is so sure that Mr. Scrooge is guilty is because he rec- he eventually realizes where he knows Mr. Scrooge from. And so he really wants Mr. Scrooge to go down for something. Like he has a lot of pride invested in making sure Mr. Scrooge is guilty. But as Mr. Scrooge, this crotchety old man, um, shows him respect, Charles starts to thaw towards him because Charles is a young man on the make and having someone who is treating him like a nobody treat him like a somebody is just a hugely empowering pride building thing for him and so when Mr. Hogarth fires him because of Timothy um, and he's offered a job with Mr. Screws he takes it because his brother has lived through a, a full lifetime at age 15 of financial instability thanks to their father's behavior and he does not want Charles um, to be out of a job so Charles takes this job and to this day um, there's no 40-hour work week. Um, there started to be reforms for kids' labor um, about just two years before my book begins, and adults were not regulated until the 1990s in England, except by various union deals. So we here in America, you know, it's, it's very foreign territory to know the working environment of 1835 in England, and so, of course, he's going to be on call. Um, you've got your work days and you've got your religious observances. And beyond that, you're just sitting in family time and your employer cares to give it to you. And in terms of solving a mystery, so there's no closed captioning television, which is so ubiquitous in big cities like London now. Like I said before, there's no computers. There's no telephones. There's also no cars and that much stronger expectation of privacy. So not only do we not have the tools we would use to solve a crime now, your upper-class person may not want you to solve a crime. They may very well just want to bury a body and move on. Okay, before I forget, Monday, I have the only exclusive interview with John Land for Murder in Season, the Jessica Fletcher series, unfortunately, it's his last one. I don't know why they took it away from him, but this is amazing. On the 30th, I think everyone needs to listen to this show. I'm going to be working with psychotherapist Dennis Colombo. We're going to talk about fear and isolation due to this horrific pandemic, which I think people need to listen to. On December 2nd, the author of The Venturi Effect. On 8th, we have a panel show of quite a number of people. On the 10th, we have the author of Saving Grace. On the 14th, we have the author of, we have Tim O'Mara, The Hook. On the 16th, don't ask me how I did this, we have five authors talking about who knows what, panel of publishing and anything else that comes to my mind. On the 21st, this, Heather, is probably the greatest honor I've ever had. On the 21st, nothing good happens after midnight, Jeffrey Beaver, John Lesqua, Heather Graham and Alan Jacobson have honored me with talking about their anthology. And finally, to honor the memory of Clive Gusler on the 23rd, 
Boyd Morrison will talk about how we collaborated to write Marauder. So I am like excited, and this is exciting today too because I love Charles Dickens. So you have a lot of great material coming up. Yeah, I do. I'm I'm, I'm blessed. I just got an email from um, James Grapando's publicist. When would you like the book sent? Uh, right now is good. <laughs> I mean, wow. You know what it is because of this horror that's happening. There's no book signings. There's only virtual right. tours. And they actually need me to do something. It makes me feel good. So, and I've been doing this. Um, <laughs> I've been doing this for for ten years, and I love it. And thanks to Cheryl for finding the time. She keeps me nice and busy all the time. And I get the best authors, so I can't complain about that. And she just did my um, tour for What If. What if you lived in my mm -hmm. world? You stop taking reckless. You know, danger in this one, and it's a sci-fi book. It's scary, and I'm. Congratulations. Yeah, it's different. It's very different. It's eight stories, six stories, and a poem, and it's about different people that get stuck in different environments. And by the time you read it, you feel sorry for them, but you want to. You don't want to live in. You want to live in the one you're in. And maybe everybody will sort of, you know, thinking before they do something. So. Mhm. Mm this was interesting. Because I don't know if people do this now. How did you learn about sketching the hands and fingers? That's interesting. I thought about that when I saw your question. And as far as I know, I made it up. I was just trying to connect the dots of trying to figure out how you would identify someone back then. And I'm a hobby artist. I do a lot of watercolor, and I probably was just thinking like an artist. How, how could you possibly figure that out? And it was quite a fun scene for me to write with um, Charles and um, Sir Silas Laurie, the coroner, and his assistant wandering around a pub buying drinks for people and getting them to allow them to sketch hands. So we have... This really, you know, Kate, you better watch out because Charles is a hot guy. And Mrs. Pettigrew <laughs> wants his, I, I was cracking up because, you know what, if you're going to have conflict with something in a book, or in a murder book, I just put it aside. Like the one I'm reading this morning, I'm going to, I'm reading it. I never write negative reviews ever, but there are times that I won't post it on Amazon. It gets less than four stars. That's the truth. I won't pan somebody. That's what I do, too, because if we... No matter whether you like a book or not, you know someone worked hard on it, and it's just not your cup of tea. So how did she go about finding the clues? Why does she want him as an ex-husband? Kate, you better watch out because, you know, after all, he's, he's, you know, he's smart, but she wanted him. She wanted to nap him. Why Charles? What was she looking for? Well, Charles uh, was a very charismatic man, a very intelligent, very witty young man, also a very good-looking young man. Um, a lost portrait of him was found in the last couple of years that was um, painted of him right about this time period, and he was quite the historical hottie. So it's not surprising that any woman now or then would look at a handsome young man with a high-paying job and say, he's for me. Um, so I had a lot of fun writing a certain scene um, with her making advances. I thought that was so cool. So, before we end, how did you go about finding clues and information to solve the murder? And who sort of, you know, 
even if you go to in order to find a reference of someone. I'm I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last few words you said. How does he go about finding clues, and who does he go to to help him? Does he have somebody that assists him or gives him information that nobody would have? Okay, so I created um, my Scooby gang the way many cozy authors do um, now getting more involved in the social world of Charles, so he runs into Charles, and of course Mr. Screws learns to trust him. Mr. Screws opens the world of the counting house to him so he can interact with people like Bob Cratchit. And um, he sends Charles out to the people that he is suspicious of. For instance, Mr. Harley's illegitimate son and the chain manufacturer. So as you recall, Mr. Harley fell out of the window with chains around his neck. And so, of course, Mr. Screws suspects that the chain manufacturer may have something to do with that because it's a business deal potentially going wrong. So that's one of the people that Charles has to investigate. Well, what happens when he has to confront between him and the killer? How did you create that? That was interesting. So in every mystery novel, um, you're trying to get to a point where justice is served and the world of the book is kind of restored. And so you always have to have a scene where the murder is uncovered. You have a moment where the murderer is on stage. You don't know yet that the murderer is there. So if you're a person who likes to reread books, you can have the pleasure of going back through and finding that first scene and trying to decide if you should have known all along that person was the killer. Um, but specifically, we're talking about that confrontation scene. So you always have to come up with a way where your amateur sleuth um, figures out who the killer is with their own wits and evidence and then confronts that person. It obviously um, often turns into a very dangerous scene for the amateur sleuth, um, but that is what we do in mystery novels at this moment. We almost always put our amateur sleuth in danger as they're confronting that killer for the first time. Um, we have to create a believable situation where the murderer is likely to answer all of our questions. So the reader wants, so you have a moment where the killer is confessing all, and then you might have a moment, that lovely, beloved Hercule Poirot moment, where he stands in front of all of the people involved in the mystery and gives a speech about what really happened. Um, thanks to his genius, he's uncovered everything. So, um, you, you have those moments where you're going to see the amateur sleuth in danger and the killer thinking they are safe. They're going to tell you um, what they did. But, of course, the amateur sleuth prevails. Justice is done. And because this is unabashedly a Christmas book, I wanted the big moment to be Christmas. So um, I'm closing as many loops as I can in this story on Christmas. Pickwick Murders, 
and that will be out approximately Halloween. I think maybe October 30th, 2021 is the release date for it. And this book obviously is centered around a Christmas Carol murder. That book is centered around Charles's um, first somewhat unusually constructed novel, um, which is one of the shorter titles for it is The Pickwick Papers. And it takes place basically just after this book ends in January 1836. So it's taking place very close to real time. Um, Charles is invited to join a prestigious society. That's how that book begins. And in real life, Charles married Kate Hogarth April of 1836. So they have their wedding to look forward to. That's getting a whole lot closer in the series. And um, they're going to get their nicer suite of rooms in Furnival's Inn and set up housekeeping uh, with Fred still and occasionally Mary in a nicer suite of rooms at Furnival's Inn. And as um, that next book is going on, we're just getting to the point in history in um, February 1836, where Charles is approached to write sporting sketches, and that's the book that becomes Pickwick Papers. So we're less than a year away from Charles becoming a literary star. We're at the very end of his anonymous formative period. So it's getting very exciting in his life, and I look forward to sharing all of those details with the reading public. I hope you do. That sounds really interesting. So before we end, tell everybody where they can find your, all of your books and learn more about you. Okay. So I have two series written as Heather Redmond, the Dickens of a Crime series. And if you loved A Christmas Carol Murder, um, please do go pick up the first two books, A Tale of Two Murders and Grave Expectations. All three books create an 1835 trilogy, but you can read them in any order if you want. And... I have another series, which is a contemporary cozy series set in Seattle called The Journaling Mysteries, and Journaled to Death came out in 2020, and uh, Tattooed to Death will be out on January 5th, although the ebook might be available um, just in a couple of weeks. Um, it's published by a British publisher um, who does things a little differently than the American publishers. So um, if you love my writing style and want to read another book by me, please do pick up Tattooed to Death. My website is heatherredmond.com, and I'm also active on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Since I am a hobby artist, I post lots of art on Instagram. Uh, but do keep in mind I have another name that I write under, and that's Heather Heaston, H-I-E-S-T-A-N-D. So, um just because I have this multiple pen name problem, you'll often find me under the Heather Heaston name as much as the Heather Redmond name. And I have websites for both names. That's exciting. You should friend me on Facebook and you can, everybody can find out what I'm up to, which is just about everything. Okay, I will look you up so I can find you and your new book. You can find me, yes. And I'm hoping I, my book, What If, is everywhere. And I've got some unusual reviews. Nothing bad, nothing, you know, some five stars, some four, and some unusual ones because people didn't actually understand what I was writing. But before I end each show, there's something that I always say. I saw this on the highway coming home the other day, and I think that it's the most pertinent statement. 
just one small ask, everyone. Protect me, I'll protect you. Please wear a mask. It's important. And I think I absolutely agree. Masks are so important right now. And if we can all just survive this unusual life we're living for a few more months, hopefully the vaccines will come and it will be a lot safer out there. I um, personally have had a death in my family um, due to COVID, Um, a lovely 80-year-old aunt of mine who should still be alive today. So please, please do wear a mask. I agree. I lost my best friend um, October 29th. I'm so sorry. It's sad because my doctor's wife, we were very close, and I didn't know she died. I didn't even know until I called up to find out if my glasses were ready. And they said that she was in the hospital. I actually had to get tested because I was near her right before when she got sick, and I was lucky that I was negative, thank God. So, Heather, take care. Um, do you do you do panel shows and with other authors? Because I do them in you know, February, March. I might decide to create another one. We talk about writing, publishing, character. We talk about anything that comes to my mind. So, if you would like to, do sure, that. I'd love to come on again. Um, I have a panel coming up December 5th with the Poison Pen Bookstore in Arizona. Um, so I definitely do do them occasionally, and I'd be happy to join in. Thank you. Everybody, it's beautiful. It's 32 degrees. It's got hot out there. Wow. <laughs> Everybody have a great day. Heather, stay safe, and bye. You, you too. Bye, friend. Thank you so much. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.